Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. What my article helps us see is the way Americans have remembered or forgotten the American Revolution, the way they valued certain parts of it and not others over the years. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Brooke Barbier taking us on a tour of Paul Revere's Boston. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing. Publishers of To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and The Race to the Dan by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is a Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Brooke Barbier, discussing Paul Revere's Boston. More specifically, what you can still see today in the 21st century. My sit-down discussion with Brooke was a good one. Uh, She comes from a scholarly background, and she works every day in the field of public history through her own business. She'll talk about that a bit on the show. But what you get from Brooke is uh, a a down-to-earth, locals perspective on the landscape that still exists from the 18th century. It's not just about buildings that remain and buildings that are gone. But it's about, in a lot of ways, the soul of a city. As Brooke says in this episode, uh, Paul Revere could look at a map of, of, of Boston and find his way home. Yes, the city's grown. Yes, the city's changed. I mean, most cities have over 200 years. Uh, but at its heart, Boston is still the same. Uh, and I think Dr. Barbier's discussion of that uh, is is an enlightening one. And the article is one you should definitely check out. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Brooke Barbier. Brooke Barbier, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brady. Tell us about your background. So um, I grew up in San Diego, California which is an amazing city to grow up in, but um, they don't love revolutionary history like they do in Boston. So um, I moved to Boston uh, over 15 years ago and I got my PhD in American history from Boston College. And I studied Boston social and political and cultural um, past, uh, specifically around the American Revolution and the early Republic. And um, I loved the um, research and writing process involved in academia, but then I also loved um, helping people learn about history in a really hands-on way. So in 2013, I founded my tour company called Yield Tavern Tours. And that takes people through downtown Boston on much of the sites that I mentioned in the article. And we also stop at historic taverns along the way to have a beer 
And um, that's because I, as much as I love history, I also love beer. So <laughs> it combined both of my interests, those tours, and they've been shut down for COVID, uh, but uh, we'll look forward to getting, getting back out there, um, you know, when it's safe. And then um, my love of Boston history just continued when I published my first book in 2017 called Boston in the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. And what I loved about that book was I was telling the story of revolutionary Boston, but um, at the end of every chapter, there is a section called From Past to Present, and it tells readers what the sites mentioned in that chapter look like today. So um, my interest, as you can probably tell, really ties into the physical history that still exists in Boston. That's very much a part of how I like to learn about history and then how I like to um, teach about history. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, um, one of my favorite things that I talk to my tour guides about and I talk to tour guests about is how similar parts of Boston are to uh, today to their colonial past. Many of the street names are the same. Some of the street, you know, the narrow and crooked streets of Boston are still the same. And um, so what I've always loved is that if you could drop Paul Revere down in Boston Common, he'd be able to find his way home because there's enough familiar to him um, today in 2021 that there would be in 1775 when he was walking. And that, I just, I love that about Boston so much. And so um, I wanted to share that with um, readers. And um, I think the buildings of Boston really help tell the story um, of, re of the revolutionary era, specifically in Boston. And so that's what I wanted to uh, bring forward. Why does so much of the 18th century remain so visible in a modern city like Boston? You know, one town that has done a great job with its preservation as well as Philadelphia. You know, we're talking big colonial towns. Uh, but Boston is really unique in this way. And one of the things I talk about in the article is the importance of the grassroots preservation movement to save buildings. So while we think of national historic landmarks today and buildings being protected, and that's quite a common thing, um, many cities have national historic landmarks. But that didn't exist until the 20th century, that sort of preservation and codification. So um, for buildings to be saved from the 17th and 18th century, it was the work of, of ordinary people, townspeople who wanted to preserve their past, who saw some value in it. Um, and I love that about Boston specifically, that many of the buildings um, in downtown Boston were at risk of being demolished but for the efforts of these um, history-loving people who saved them. And I, I think that's so, um, so, so, such a wonderful story. Now, today, of course, the city and the state really understand the value of these historic buildings, but 150 years ago, they weren't a part of these efforts to save these, uh, these buildings in Boston. Tell us about Paul Revere. Give us some background. Well, your popular idea is probably actually, I'd say, pretty accurate. Um, what we think of him, we think of him famous for his midnight ride, and he did, in fact, take that midnight ride. Um, what you may also know about him is that he was a silversmith, 
And um, what you may not know is that he was a man about town. He was involved peripherally or right on the front lines with so many revolutionary events. Now, I, I don't cover that necessarily in his article. There's some wonderful biographies that, that, talk, about, um, that talk about his life more. But um, he's an interesting character to, to follow in my article through downtown Boston because he was so involved in so many different things. So, for example, uh, we, we have him go to the Massachusetts State House. You know, on, on the walk, we're walking with Revere. We're imagining him walking in 2021. And he had something to do with the Massachusetts State House. And then if he kept walking just another block, He'd be in his own graveyard. And then another block, a church from the 17th century, he had created their bell for. So it, it just continues on that he's sort of, he, he's, you know, at so many key moments, both in the landscape of Boston, but also in the political and lived experience of uh, the revolution in Boston. So he's the perfect guy to follow around, not to mention he he was involved in a lot of clubs and he, uh, he was sort of a man about town. So um, he would be familiar with a lot of, um, a lot of the non-political aspects too. He loved going into a tavern. And uh, so he'd be, he'd be happy to see how many taverns still exist in Boston and would probably make some fast friends if he were to go into one today. Talk about the importance of one of the first places you review in your article, Boston Common. Yeah, Boston Common is the nation's oldest public park. So it's almost as old as Boston itself. Boston was founded in 1630 and then Boston Common in 1634. Um, Boston Common is in the same location today as it was in the 18th century, but the shape of it has changed a slight bit. Um, But also what anyone who lives in Boston or has visited Boston knows is that Boston common no longer borders the, the sea, any sort of water. But in the 18th century, the back Bay of Boston, the back Bay of the Charles river abutted up against Boston common. So at one point it, the backside of Boston common was um, waterfront property. And what would surprise Revere is how much the land has been filled in over the last 250 years that are really 200 years that um, Boston Common has been pushed out. There's now landfill behind Boston Common. Um, All of the back bay has been filled in and um, much of downtown, even the North End, his neighborhood, while that still retains some of its original shape, the shoreline is new. So um, Boston Common represents in some ways this Um, the same aspect of Boston from the colonial era, which is it's the same spot. Revere would recognize it as a big open park, but then it also shows the way that Boston has changed by um, literally no longer being on the water anymore. But Revere, um, Revere would have remembered the common for lots of things. So when British troops were sent to Boston in 1768 and they were looking for places to stay in Boston, some of them camped on Boston Common, for example, tents pitched, and they actually had an execution of a soldier out on Boston Common. So he would remember Boston Common for sort of a grim event like that, but he'd also remember it for, um, 
the Stamp Act repeal and celebration in 1766. He had created an obelisk to be illuminated from within that people admired on Boston Common. So again, Revere sort of at these touch points um, throughout the revolutionary movement in Boston. And um, that includes Boston Common, where, the, where our tour in the article begins. Could you discuss the importance of the Massachusetts State House? Yeah. Okay. So if you're looking up from the from Boston Common, if you're looking toward the north east, you would see the Massachusetts State House, and um, that. So there's two state houses in Boston within half a mile of each other. There's the old State House, and that was the State House until 1798. And then there's just what we call today the Massachusetts State House, which is where the governor goes to work, the legislators go to work. Um, but it was um, the first cornerstone was laid in 1795. So, for example, Joseph Warren, who died in the Battle of Bunker Hill in 1775, would not be able to remember. He would have no idea that there was a new state house in Boston that was built. But because Revere lived to the age of 83, he saw a lot of these changes that others would not have. Other contemporaries of him who died uh, much younger would, uh, would not have known. So um, the Massachusetts State House, um, the first cornerstone was laid in 1795, and Revere was actually a part of that process. Again, he's everywhere. Um, he was accompanied Governor Samuel Adams to uh, lay the cornerstone, and they actually put a time capsule in the cornerstone that has since been uncovered twice. So the first time was in the mid-19th century, and then it was discovered more recently about five years ago when they were doing some necessary repairs. And so inside the time capsule, they displayed the items at the Museum of Fine Arts. And while there wasn't like anything so exciting inside Brady, just the fact that there was a time capsule was exciting. And um, my favorite part was a silver plate engraved by Paul Revere that had been put into the time capsule. Um, so the Massachusetts State House doesn't have a ton to do with Paul Revere in um, politically because it comes much later in Boston. You know, it comes after the war is over, this building is built. Um, but he, he is involved, as he is with most things. And uh, so that includes, like I said, the cornerstone time capsule. But then also he, his um, foundry covered the original wooden dome from the state house in copper. And so he's involved in that way. So you're probably picking up, Brady, that he's just, he, in his lifetime, he really had, he was everywhere. So he would be likely flooded with memories. I imagine he would, he would be... Um, you know, so many uh, events would be coming back to him as he saw these buildings still standing. Now, it's worth mentioning the Massachusetts State House is so much bigger today than it was in 17, it was completed in 1798. And that's owing to the destruction of John Hancock's property. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that if you'd like. A lot of your story has to do with conservation the positives and negatives. Uh, tell us about the story of John Hancock's property. Yeah, that is, it is, it is sad. It, it is just straight sad. So 
what happened was John Hancock um, inherited his the house and land on the top of Beacon Hill from his uncle. And Hancock died young, especially compared to someone like Paul Revere. He died in 1793. And he had no direct heirs. So while he and his wife had two children, neither of them survived um, out of childhood. And so he had no one after his wife died to protect the estate. So some relatives of his lived in the house until in, to, in, this, in his mansion at the top of Beacon Hill until 1859. And then just a few years later, the family offered the Hancock mansion to the city of Boston saying, you can have it for free. You know, we're going to sell the land out, but if you want to move the house somewhere else, and Boston City Council was interested, and they kind of thought, where could we put this? So they thought maybe of putting it in the Back Bay, this new neighborhood that was land-filled in. And ultimately, they didn't raise any money. And um, so the Hancock heirs sold the land, and then the house was leveled as a part of building two new townhouses where Hancock's mansion was. Um, it's worth mentioning that while Hancock's descendants were in living in his house from his death until the 1860s, um, the state house was right next to Hancock's home. Uh, so Hancock's house stood next to the Massachusetts state house that I was just describing for 60 years until Hancock's heir died. And then the remaining descendants just wanted the money. They didn't, care about preserving it. And it's really tragic to have this home um, destroyed, but um, two things come out of this, or uh, one primary thing comes out of this, and that is the preservation efforts of ordinary people. Um, people, Bostonians sort of realized, wow, we lost this treasure, this home, and it could happen again to other buildings, right? If, if, if John Hancock's home could be destroyed, um, what other buildings would people not hesitate to sell out from underneath um, uh, to to land to you know to investors and um, developers? And so it really started the modern preservation efforts in Boston. And so while Revere might look and see Hancock's house destroyed and lose hope and think, well, goodness, like if, if Hancock's house is destroyed how many buildings am I going to recognize? Um, but it's because of Hancock's home that we have many of these other buildings still standing. And that's, so um, Hancock's house was sort of <laughs> the sacrifice that uh, Bostonians needed to wake up to preserve these buildings. Um, it's, 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 it's also just worth noting that Hancock's house, the desire to sell the land shows how valuable real estate in Boston was becoming. So even though landfill was rapidly increasing the size of Boston, as I mentioned earlier, that didn't mean that uh, there was enough land. So land downtown, especially on Beacon Hill, was super valuable, and that included Hancock's house. And um, it's sort of funny because Hancock's uncle who bought the land would, would probably – um, be proud of his investment because when he bought the land, Beacon Hill was 
hardly inhabited. There was just a few houses. It was a really unusual place to build a home when he did in the 1740s. And so um, to have it be such valuable land just a century, you know, uh, less than a century and a half later, um, Thomas Hancock, John's uncle, who was a very strong businessman, would probably be proud of his investment, although very disappointed that his house was leveled. And the only thing that still stands at Hancock's mansion, I mean, there, there's nothing that still stands, but the only thing marking it is a little plaque that's on the exterior of the Massachusetts State House, just saying here stood Hancock's home. So it's, it's sad, but the rest of Revere's journey home would be um, more fruitful because Hancock's mansion was, was leveled. One of my deep, dark secrets is that I love historic cemeteries. I love the stories they tell. Uh, tell us about some of the famous people we would see in the Granary Burying Ground. Oh, Brady, so many people. That's what's crazy. And in fact, that, um, you know, you asked how I got interested in this project and, uh, you know, interested in for the article, but when I first visited Boston from San Diego, I was so surprised and amazed by the buildings and sites still standing. And actually the, the site that really sealed the deal for me. And I said, wow, Boston is this incredible town was the granary burying ground because I couldn't believe that in the midst of this bustling downtown, there was this three and a half, century old burying ground that housed the VIPs of the American Revolution. So here's who you could find if you went in there. Not just Paul Revere, but you could find John Hancock, Samuel Adams, James Otis, Robert Treat Payne. He was a signator on the signatory on the Declaration of Independence. You could find the victims of the Boston Massacre there. So it's and it's this teeny tiny little plot of land right downtown. So it's um, just steeped with history. And there's, there's many other um, lesser known folks there that Revere would be familiar with. Um, so Thomas Cushing is there. He was a delegate to the uh, Second Continental Congress, for example, a contemporary of Samuel Adams and John Hancock. Um, Peter Faneuil is buried there. He... Um, of the eponymous Faneuil Hall. He put up the money to build Faneuil Hall. He's buried there as well. So it's, it's a packed spot. And it's steps from Boston Common. So if you're in Boston, um, all of the places I describe in the article, if you can't join us for one of our tours <laughs> for a beer, these are really easy to do on your own. The, the walk that I'm describing in the article is just over a mile. It's really easy to do. We couldn't talk about Paul Revere's Boston without talking about Paul Revere's home. What can you tell us about that property? Yeah, so as I mentioned with the, um, that John, the destruction of John Hancock's home awakened other people to the possibility that these homes would be destroyed and that it was really the effort of private individuals that saved them. That is especially true for Paul Revere. His house, after he sold it, he sold it during his lifetime, um, was repurposed. It was a boarding house, a tenement house at one point. It was a cigar shop. 
um, it had many different functions uh, or different tenants. And then a relative of Paul Revere's bought his home. And shortly thereafter, um, was involved in creating the Paul Revere Memorial Association, which ultimately um, repurposed Paul Revere's house to be a museum. And um, that's what you could visit today. And very recently, Brady, within the past mm, three or four years, they have um, expanded, uh, not the house itself, but um, just, you know, if you buy a ticket to admit yourself into the house, there's now a visitor center that is really lovely as well that has some Revere artifacts. And that was a really nice addition to the home because the home is so worth um, buying a ticket to go inside because Revere's home was old when he bought it. So it was nearly a century old when he bought it in 1770. So it is um, quite an experience to go into this 17th century home. It's, you know, it's pretty tight quarters, the low ceilings with the exposed beams. It's just, it really can take you back to that era. Um, but it's a, it's a pretty quick experience through the house because it's, it's pretty small. And so the visitor center gives you a little more that you can, um, that, that guests can, can learn more about Revere and the neighborhood of the North End itself. So it's a really, um, it's, it's one of the most popular places to visit in Boston. Um, but again, it was the work of private individuals that made that happen. And, and I love that for the Paul Revere house. How does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better? It's a, that's a really good question. And um, okay, so I, I'd say there's two answers to that. The first is that it helps us, um, I'm, I'm a really, I'm a visual learner. And for those that like to learn visually or kinesthetic learners would re, uh, can really visualize themselves in the 18th century when they go inside some of these buildings or even stand out in front of them or stand on Boston Common because if you close your eyes, there's nearly 400 years of history standing with you. And so I think that alone, it, it's giving you an experience of the American Revolution you can't get from a book, you can't get from, um, you know, from a podcast. It's really this wonderful in-person experience. And so I think that can really help people's interest in the American Revolution grow, is to see these places and walk in the same footsteps as Paul Revere or John Hancock or Samuel Adams. But the second part, and I think this is maybe um, less talked about, but it's the way that it, um, what my article helps us see is the way Americans have remembered or forgotten the American Revolution, the way they valued certain parts of it and not others over the years, and how that leads to the destruction of some buildings and then the preservation of others. And just to say that the way that we remember history isn't static, that, and the way that we value history isn't static, or certain aspects or years or time periods or people of history can change over time. And I think that's what we see here too, is that the revolutionary legacy of Boston is so strong, but uh, preserving that physical legacy really fell on the shoulders of, of citizens who, um, who banded together to, to honor their, their city's history 
and um, help us uh, uh, visit today. So that's a gal from San Diego can visit Boston and say, wow, this is incredible. This is making history come alive and make her want to move there and, and, and study it and um, really try to help others learn about it. Brooke Barbier, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.